In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. So we're going to continue with the argument that we started to build last time we met. The summary of what we were trying to establish the last time we met is simply to say that when we look at the tools that we have as human beings, we see that while they really allow us to do certain things, for instance, explore nature, to study nature and discover its laws and understand how nature works. We have access to that because of the tools that we have, which are our five senses, our reason, our sense of logic. We're able to do that on our own. If we compare that with other types of knowledge that we wonder about, we don't really have any tools to get there. Including, for instance, what happens after death? Or where did we really come from? And until now, we've started to answer those questions based on reason, based on our logic, our understanding of how the world works. This is, for instance, how we established there has to be a God. These are some of his attributes. We can look at it as a necessary being. These are things that would never work for that type of God. We established all of that. But the truth is, if we wanted to go into the details of any of those, we would not be able to. All we can reach are very high-level, objective, philosophical, logical principles, but the details, how these would apply, we would have a lot of trouble with it. And then there are things that we have absolutely no tools to look into. For instance, For instance, what happens after death? So the, here's where we absolutely have no tools at our disposal to get into any sort of details. The best, inshallah, when we talk about the, the afterlife, the hereafter, we're going to get into detailed discussions about all of this. We should be able to say that there has to be something that happens. Other wor- uh, otherwise, we fall into the problem of evil in the world without a solution. So ha- something has to happen to reestablish justice and order and so on and so forth. But details, we can't establish any details unless we get some news from that other world. So someone needs to know how that world works. Either they go and come back and tell us, or God tells us, the one who created all of that. This was, in summary, what we were trying to establish. Then we started going into a little bit more detail. So we said we now know, just with this, we already know that there are limits to the tools that human beings have, the knowledge that they have, the things that they are really fundamentally inquiring about, there are tools, but those tools are not, are not enough to answer those questions, or all of those questions. So this is where we go into a little bit more detail. We start looking at our lives. We start saying in an ideal world, in a world where you actually believe that there is a God, you actually believe that you have been created for a purpose, you actually believe that you're supposed to be live in a certain way, and inshallah, as we shall see, we can park this for now, but as we shall see, inshallah, in a world where there is an afterlife, maybe there's a certain way you're supposed to be living. 
to meet all of those purposes. So the purposes of this life and the purposes of the next. And this is where we started looking at human life. So when you look at a human being, you see that there are multiple dimensions, angles, aspects to their being. You have your body and everything related to that. So sleeping, eating, anything related to what you do with your body. So for me to live this purposeful life, live the way I'm really supposed to, in a manner that's going to be balanced and that's going to be purposeful for this world and the afterlife, I have to know what am I doing with my body? How am I supposed to live? What's my relationship with the body? What's my relationship with myself psychologically? What's my relationship with myself spiritually? Because these are the dimensions of a human being. Any human being has these. So either you say, just go with the flow and live, or you say, if there is a purpose, maybe I was instructed, I was given some guidance on how I'm supposed to live and cover each one of these dimensions. And then we said, if it's for humanity, then that code should apply to human beings in general. And human beings are very different from one another. So what may apply to you may not apply to me. And what may apply to your society may not apply to a society that existed a thousand years ago or that will exist in one thousand years from now. So can we really come up with a system that's going to meet those types of needs or not? And when we look at social life, human beings have a very complex social life and social life is a necessity. If they want to be happy, human beings have to be in society. They're social creatures which means that you have to look at the way they're supposed to be living in a legal system, they're supposed to be living in a financial system, they're supposed to be living in a family system, they're supposed to be living in a political system. But these are very complex systems. Who's supposed to come up with these in a way that will ensure that that human being and that society in which they're living is actually living the purposeful life in this world and the next. Right? This is what we were building the last time we met. And then we said, even though it may be possible for someone to claim that they have built this type of system, and let's add it further. I added a new argument in there last week very quickly, but the majority I think were half asleep. I said, now we have artificial intelligence, we have big data. We're able to use supercomputers to collect all human experience that we're aware of. Let's put it in a computer and generate the best possible system in every one of these fields for humanity. Even if we were to do that, and even if someone is going to claim that this is not going to be biased, I'm not going to be building a system for my own benefit and not yours. I'm not going to be building a system to give me some sort of upper hand over who, whomever I consider to be my enemy or whomever I consider to have the resource that I want to take, or, 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 even if we were able to create that system, that would only be for this world. So in the best case scenario, because someone may say, well, humanity has not had enough time. You give humanity enough time, they will learn from their mistakes, 
generally speaking, humanity, human societies keep evolving. They're getting better. We're maturing as a society. We have much better systems than we had in the past. It's always improving. Fine. Even if that were the case, if someone were to take all of that experience and put it together, even that, and as, I, as we said, unbiased, the best we can generate is maybe a system that would create some sort of social and individual happiness in this world. But what about the next? Who says that the, gen- the system that we created for this world has actually been balanced in the right way so that it doesn't impact in a negative way the, your life in the afterworld? Maybe you're doing something here that feels good or tastes good or seems to be good and it doesn't look like you're harming anyone when in truth you're actually harming yourself. If you don't know the laws, the causality between when something happens here, what does it become over there? How does it change into something if it does change into something or not in the afterlife? Then you're working blind. You have no clue what it's going to mean in the afterlife. That's in the best case scenario if we want to accept the argument which is often repeated. I don't need a religious system to tell me how to live. Human beings on their own, with their reason and with their experience and given enough time, they're going to be acquiring that maturity as a society and as individuals until they can create their own system. The short answer to this is, well, they haven't yet. But we're not saying that they will never be able to. Maybe. Maybe they'll be able to create a system where there's a lot more peace, a a lot less injustice, so on and so forth. But where is, going, where is the information related to the afterlife going to come from? And this is the part that I'm saying, for now you just have to take my word for it that there's an afterlife, because we haven't established it yet. Okay, so when we get to the topic of afterlife, as we said, we had a choice here. When we were done with the topic of proving God and His attributes, we either would move into the afterlife or we move into prophethood. So we moved into prophethood. But we're parking the afterlife until we're done with prophethood and then we'll go back. But the moment that there's a 1% chance that there's an afterlife, then you have to keep it into the equation. You can't just dismiss it. So I think generally speaking, we said that until now, this has not been produced. That's one. The second thing is, this is something that we haven't really mentioned and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just something to give you especially the ones of you who are really interested in these topics. You want to look maybe more into it. There are a lot of people who say the current world is a lot better than it used to be before. As we said, there are thinkers like Steven Pinker and others who are writing books and they're talking about this. They're very, very popular. They are trying to show that the world we live in today is a lot safer, a lot better, has a lot more justice, has a lot more health, has a lot more money, average, right? If you compare today's average with the average 1,000 years ago, it's a much happier life today than it was. The average today is much happier than the average 1,000 years ago. Not to say that there is no misery and there's no war and there's no poverty. That's not what we're saying. So with that, they're trying to establish that, generally speaking, humanity is moving upwards. It's, it's a nice, positive evolution. My argument here 
just something to keep in mind, as I said, for those of you who are interested in a little bit more nuance and detail. Someone needs to go back and look at the foundations of the systems today that we have and pinpoint the things that we consider to be good. Let's say today's world is a lot better than it was before. Can we pinpoint the things that are good? So someone does that. You categorize them. You say these are the things that in today's system are creating a better world. And these systems, they're still problematic. In an ideal world, we would get rid of those things. Right? Okay. My argument is, if you were able to do that, you will show that in today's world, the things that are considered the foundations of whatever is positive in today's systems, the truth is they actually come from religious systems. If you look at the legal system, if you look at the social justice system, if you look at the, the infrastructure, the foundations of current day society, take any country that considers itself secular, non-religious. They say there's no place between, no place for religion in our society. We have completely secluded, separated church from state. Go read their constitution and compare it with what it says, for instance, in the old religious texts, Judeo-Christian Christian texts, what the Old Testament says, for instance, how you're supposed to treat one another, what you're supposed, how you're supposed to handle rights, who has rights over whom and in what way. Of course there are things that are, have changed, but the foundations are religious. This is something to keep in mind. We're going to come back to it later. After we, we're going to talk about today, inshallah, next week, we'll come back to this point. Okay? There's just something to keep in mind. It's not so easy to say today's world is pretty good. Okay, why is it good? Which elements of it are good and where did they come from? Is it really true that humanity on its own came up with all of this? They seem pretty simple, but they seem simple after the fact, when we were given it. It's, it's too easy to say they're very easy. To actually get humanity to agree on something, I'm not sure it's that easy. And we have to give credit where credit is due. So if these came from a religious history, a religious background, we have to openly say religion contributed to this. Religion was not all bad. And today's systems are a testament to this. Okay, so keep this in mind. Now let's move to... Now let's move to the next topic, today's topic. And inshallah we'll keep it not too long. This was the link, the recap, and the link with today's addition to the argument. The addition to the argument is, now that we know that our knowledge and our tools are lacking, and we believe that there might be a... Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. So if you believe that human knowledge is lacking, we don't have all the tools we need to live the happy life in this world or the happy life in the next world. We need a little bit of help. We need a little bit of guidance. Okay, so now what do we do? Our answer is when we said we need perfect knowledge of what a human being is from every angle. Perfect knowledge of what the human species needs. Perfect knowledge of human society. It's impossible. So he said the only answer we have is 
that it needs to come from the one who created it. So we have to go back to a system that comes from God. If he says, this is how you deal with your body, say, okay, you've created the body, you would know. This is how you're supposed to deal with your psychology and with your emotions and with your spirituality and, and this is how you're supposed to deal with your parents. This is how you're supposed to deal with your other people in society, with your neighbors, financially, laws of inheritance, laws of... Okay, now it starts to make sense. Because it's coming from the one who has full knowledge of all of this. The transition that we're making there, this, this is what we're starting today, from if there's something missing that we need something to come to us from the outside, this new source of knowledge is usually what we refer to as revelation. Wahi. This is something that God communicates to you that you can apply. So either it becomes something you just believe in, so it changes your worldview, the way you see the world, you experience the world. So that's ideological. Or it's actually directly action. Pray. Fast. Sleep this way. Eat this way. Don't eat this. Don't drink that. These become actions. But the actions are resting on beliefs. This is the system of religion. Okay, now we want to start looking at why our prophets sent. We gave the general answer. The general answer is there's a lack, there's something missing in human knowledge that does not allow them to build a system for themselves to live happy in this world and the next. The answer that we're proposing is prophethood. Prophets. Revelation. So now we need to start asking the question, why are prophets sent? After that, we're going to start looking at what are they sent with? What is this revelation? What can we say about it? What do we need from it? So why are prophets sent? First answer should be easy. This is going to be important, and I'll come back to it. This is going to be important because we need if I don't know what I need from the Prophet, I don't know what to expect from that Prophet. How do I know that this is going to be a Prophet? I need something that gives me the criteria that this person does this. If you're a police officer, this is your function. This is what you're supposed to do. If I don't know what you're supposed to do, then I can't tell, well, is this a good one or a bad one? Are you really a police officer? Can you do that role or not? Right? So I need to establish first, what does it mean when I say someone is going to carry that system, that message to me? What does it mean? What do I need from those people that we call prophets? What do I need from them? The first thing should be clear. Based on everything we've said, we said human beings lack knowledge. There are types of knowledge a human being cannot reach on their own. That's what I need first and foremost from the prophets. I need to know the details about God that I can't reach on my own. I need to know the details about the afterlife that I can't reach on my own. I don't know. How can I ever know what happens after death? So if a prophet comes and says, God says, this is what happens after death, 
That's what I need the Prophet for. I need from them things that may help humanity advance 10,000 years into the future. So either humanity works on its own, and it's going to take 10,000 years for them to discover something, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to help humanity, push them a little bit quickly more to the forefront. So he tells them, here's a little bit of knowledge in this field so that you move a little bit faster. So either you go and work and create science and you try and it doesn't work and you fail and you do something else and you kill each other for 2,000 years, you come back, you work on it again, that's one way. Or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you, don't waste any time on this, this is how you do it. And that's, that could happen too. But that's not the main reason why prophets are sent. The main reason is not for him to explain to you how aspirin works. Because you can discover that on your own. But telling you the stuff that you can't discover on your own, that's the main reason. And this we keep in mind because it's going to help us answer some objections later on why prophets are sent and why don't they help human beings in every way and so on and so forth. Okay? So the first thing I need from a prophet is the knowledge that I do not have any tools to get on my own. That one should be clear. That's what we've talked about until now. The second thing I need from prophets, that one too we've talked about, I need the laws. And I need laws in every aspect of my life. If it doesn't give me any laws, it means I'm free. It means whatever I decide to build in there, I'm free to do so. And if it gives me laws, it means, no, I'm a lot more prescribed here. It's not a freedom. Sometimes the laws are negative. Don't do. Don't say, don't look, don't drink, don't eat. These are negative laws. These are the red lines. And generally speaking, it's mostly that. So it's like you're in a playground, you want to play something and they draw the red lines around you. And they tell you, so long as you stay within those red lines, you're good. You can do anything in here. But there are red lines. And there are positive laws, which within there, within those red lines, you're also told, while you're in there, you also have to do this. You have to pray five times a day. You have to perform the pilgrimage once in your life. You have to fast one time in the year. Okay. With that, that's all individual and religious. But there's also a social system. So now that you're part of this system, how are you supposed to be with your neighbor? And how are you supposed to be if someone is living in misery and you can help them? What if they're close to you? What if they're far? How are you supposed to handle if someone dies? They died and they left a million dollars. What are you supposed to do with that? You want to get married. How do you get married? Can you marry anyone or are there any restrictions? If you have children, what's the relationship with them? And, and, and. This is the legal system and it goes into every aspect of a human being's life. This is the second thing I need from that prophet. I need a legal system that explains to me how that world that I'm supposed to be living in, how am I supposed to be behaving in it? What can I do and what can't I do? And it's supposed to have a 
individual level so it works as a person for every person and it has to have a social level so how do you fit into the big picture you're not all alone if you do something it impacts someone else so how do I deal with the property of someone else can I take it can I not are there situations where I can so on and so forth the third thing I need the third thing I need is that if that society is built and those laws actually start to be applied, I need leadership. I need someone to actually lead the society in a certain direction. There's a social order. Human beings live together in groups. Decisions have to be made on behalf of the group. There's a social order, there's a military order, there's a political order. You need leadership. That leadership also goes to the other aspects. For example, I don't only need leadership from someone who makes a decision and people follow. I do need that. That's important. I also need someone to live those principles. And this is one of the most important parts of the prophethood. We can present it in another way and say you need the spiritual guidance. But it has two parts. The more important part that people feel is how to live. It's one thing when the book says or the law says you're supposed to do something. You're supposed to be good. Okay, you're supposed to be. What does that mean? And then you read it and you say, well, it's impossible to be that good. How, how is that supposed to look like? I'm only human. I have desires. I have needs. I have emotions. What does that really look like? So what you need from the Prophet is not only to lead and make decisions and bring people together and move them together. You need someone who applies this in their life. You need someone to show it to you. You need to look and see a human being in front of you and look at them. How do they sleep? How do they eat? How do they deal with their families? How do they deal with their neighbors? How do they deal in a situation of war? How do they deal in a situation of peace? What do they do when they're sick? You need someone who is a human being like you who is living a normal life like you, who actually shows you in practice, not in theory. The theory is there. The law was revealed to you. The principles were given to you. What you need from the prophet is the actual example. They say the personification. You need the idea in a person, applied. It's easy to say, this is what you're supposed to do. It's easy to say you're supposed to be religious. What does it mean on a day-to-day for a human being? And this is the reason why the Holy Quran always repeats, we're not. They keep asking the prophets, all the prophets, including our prophet, they keep asking for angels. They're not happy. They're too arrogant. They say if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to send someone, he should have sent an angel, not a human being just like us. Otherwise, he should have sent me. Why did he send you? What's so special about you? So the argument is really because of arrogance. I don't want to accept that someone else is that much better than me, that God sends a message to them. 
Okay? So I refuse that. I say, well, if God wants to talk to me, let him send the angel, not another human being like me. And the Holy Quran answers. It says why angels can't be sent. Because if angels are sent, human beings are going to say, well, I'm not an angel. God should have sent human beings. The angel has its own reality. Of course the angel is going to be good. He doesn't know what I'm feeling. He doesn't know what I'm going through. He's not made of flesh and bones like me. He doesn't have my desires, my emotions, my weaknesses, my passions, everything. He doesn't have any of that. So it doesn't apply to me. No one could live like the angel. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intentionally sends people that the normal people will identify with. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends someone, He says in the Quran, every time Allah has sent a prophet, He has sent him from the same town to the people that He's sent to. Why? So that they don't say, well, this is a stranger, they come from another land, they have a different constitution, they're made differently. No, he sends someone that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can use as an argument against those people to tell them, this person is exactly like you. He grew up like you. He comes from the same background. He, de- he deals with the same issues. And now that I've told him how to live, he's showing you how you're supposed to conduct yourself. What you're supposed to do and what you're, what you're not supposed to do. Yes? Yeah, I was talking about that. Like, uh, in uh, with Hafiz, I always said there are people from their people. How does it work with, like, an Arab man in the desert with a white person living here? Mm-hmm. There's no... Yeah, so inshallah we're going to get to that in detail. We're going to have a whole discussion about two things. Once we're done the general prophethood, we're going to talk about specific prophethood. And we're going to make a distinction between different levels or ranks or categories of prophets. Some prophets were sent to a very small group of people. Maybe a prophet would be sent to his family or his tribe, and that's it. And another prophet is sent to all of humanity. And another prophet is not only sent to another hu- all of humanity, he's sent to people who will come in the future. So now it's not only about the prophet, it's also about the teachings. And it depends on the level of reception. The people who receive that message. Do they have the maturity to understand what applies only to them and what applies to everyone? So even though this happened 14 centuries ago for us, there are parts that we say, well, this part doesn't apply to us. We are no longer living in the desert. We are no longer living in tents in the middle of nowhere 14 centuries ago. We live today with technology, with heating, with electricity, with... So how does that change in our world? And do I have the tools from the religion? Does, did it give me the tools to clearly say this doesn't apply and this does? And inshallah we're going to get to that. That's two topics that inshallah we're going to keep to the end of Prophet Muhammad's prophethood. One of them is called Al-Khatamiyyah. So what does it mean when we say he's Khatam? He's the last. What does that imply? There's a lot of conclusions that come out of that. What's different, different between his religion and the others? Khatamiya, one. And two, the universality. So it's a universal religion and it's a final religion. Those two go together, but they're two different things. And that's it, both of them open that question. So what do we do now? We are not those people. But the religion has been sealed. There's nothing new that will ever be revealed again. So what do we have to assume 
How do we have to understand the message that was revealed? It means it has to work for any time and for every people. In short, that's what it is. That's an excellent question. So, what we need from the prophets, we need, we need knowledge, we need a law for every aspect of life, we need those red lines and the things I can do and the things I can't do, and I need someone who shows me with, by example. He leads societies, as we said, that's another one, and then someone who shows me by example. What does it look like for a human being to live this way? And this is extremely important. And inshallah we're going to come back to that next time when we meet. We're going to talk about this notion. Why do we need asma? Why do we say that these prophets have to be masum, Have to be infallible? What does it mean if they weren't? How does it weaken the entire message? How does it weaken the entire point of a revelation? Does it still even make sense to speak of a revelation from God if these people are making mistakes like everybody else? Okay? So what I need from them is to lead by example. So that there is a clear argument from God to human beings that it is possible to live this way. It's not impossible. It's within your reach. And this is what it looks like. And here's one example, and here's another example, and here's another example, and here's 124,000 examples in the case of prophets, for instance. Right? Okay. Then, specifically, after leading by example, they need to be doing the one thing that we said no one else can do, which is purifying you. And this is the religious part. This is the part that no one else can do. No one else understands what your soul needs. Only God. He needs to be the one telling you what you need to do to purify your soul, to give your soul what it needs. The only way to get there is to get through the revelation, is to get to that type of knowledge. You will not find it anywhere else. And here I need two things from the prophets. Psychologically, it's the same point as we just said before about the laws, someone to apply them. Psychologically, for my spirituality, I need someone who does it in front of me because I accept it better. I've mentioned this example before. Someone comes to you and tells you smoking is not good. And they are smoking at the same time. <clears throat> the argument what they're telling you is right it's true that smoking is not good and they can even give you a whole lecture on the bad effects of smoking and all the facts that they're giving you are right no issue but they're smoking while they're doing it human beings have a problem with that when you see that you're going to say you're being a hypocrite I agree, I understand that these are good facts, but why don't you do it? So psychologically, you don't want to accept the message from someone if they're breaking themselves their own message. I'm telling you this is bad, but I do it. Well, I'm not going to accept it. It's only very few people who will say, 
I don't care what the person is doing. I'm going to concentrate on the truth of the content. It's true what they're saying. Forget what, you know, don't, don't look at what I do. Look at what I, listen to what I say. Do what I say. Don't do what I do. You've heard that? Okay, the majority of people, they don't do that. It will impact you. It will weaken you to see someone telling you pray and they don't pray. Fast and they don't fast. Be good to people and they're not good to people. That's just human nature. You're going to say, you want to do it? Well, do it first before you say, show me that you're doing it and then I'll listen to you. Until then, don't bother me. Go fix yourself. Right? That's the majority of human beings. That's how we are. So before I need someone to guide me spiritually, to show me that I can use them to learn from them spiritually, to become better internally, good for my soul, good for my heart. What kind of person are they? And this is completely different from the other one, which is someone who just lives. They're just good in external appearance. There are human beings on their own who are amazing on their own. They have a very high level of spirituality, very good to other people, without even having an external religion. Naturally, they are like that. And they live that way. If the prophets are sent from God to guide all of humanity, then how is that prophet supposed to be to be able to guide someone like that? There are people who are very good, naturally, on their own. They will not ever do anything wrong. They will be as good as they can. They will help everyone they can. They will help cats and dogs and trees and not pollute. Just good people. Plenty of them. There are people who will steal and will hurt others and will kill and, and, and. Yes, a lot of people will do that. And for those people, you don't need something amazing to guide them. So as soon as they see someone who is that good, they can follow them. But what about the person who is amazing? Who is really pure? To start with, they're pure. To start with, they're really good. Who is going to guide them? So those people are going to need an example that is even higher than them. So that when they see those people, they say, this is really someone sent from God. This is really someone who has a type of knowledge that I don't have. As good as I am, they have access to something that makes them even better. So I want to follow them. This is why when you go into back to the time of the Holy Prophet, for instance, we're told that very few people in the Arab, Arabian Peninsula, the Hejaz where the Holy Prophet was sent, there were already a few Arabs who had refused to drink wine. They would not drink any alcohol. Before Islam, on their own. So when Islam was sent, those people were, some of them, some of the first to enter. Other people were killing and stealing, and some Arabs, if you read their poetry, they say, I, will, I swear I will never drink water so long as there is wine in the world. Okay, that's how much wine they drank. They did not touch water. They only drank wine. And that's why it was so difficult for when Islam came, it was so difficult for people to let go of wine. And that's why a lot of our scholars say that wine was not made forbidden right away. It, it was made progressively. 
right? And it said, don't drink wine. Don't come close to the prayer if you are drunk. It's not saying don't drink it all the time. Don't drink it if you're about to pray. And then it became, so it was gradual. Because it would have been too difficult because these people are addicted to it. So you can't cut it off in one shot. So it happened over in two or three steps and over, over time. Anyways, that's just one example. I need someone in that society that is going to be a good example for the worst of the people and the best of the people. And it only works if that person actually, as they say, they walk the walk. It's not enough to explain. They have to live it so that when I see them, I see that they are really truthful and I'm going to be guided by their behavior. They don't even need to say anything. And if you study the lives of the prophets and our holy prophet and the imams, for instance, you see how many people they attracted to religion without opening their mouth. Just with their behavior. When people will see how good they are, that alone brings people to them. And they say someone like that, I want to follow them. I want to be like them. And especially if you look at the manner in which it's easy when someone hasn't done anything wrong to you. If you see how they dealt with their enemies or how they dealt with people that no one wants to deal with, this is where you see that this is okay. These people are for real. They're, what they're willing to go through and how far they're going to, willing to go shows truly what kind of pure heart they have, how good they really are. Otherwise, it's easy. When everybody is good and everything is easy, it's, it's easy to say I'm good. How do you deal with someone who comes and insults you and insults your parents and says, you know, if I could, I, I would do this to you and I would do that to you, like they did, for instance, when they came to Imam al-Hassan salam. When someone came to him and they, they started telling him, as soon as he came, they started talking about Imam Ali salam and about al-Hassan. As soon as he found out, who are you? You're Hassan, Hassan ibn Ali? Yes. So he had come from Sham. He had come from, the, from under the people who were with Muawiyah. So all they had heard about Imam Ali salam and his family is that these are bad people. This is the reason why there's misery and corruption and wars. So he started insulting him and his, and his father. The Imam waited. And then when the man was there, he told him, are you done? He told him, yes. He told him, you look like a stranger. Maybe you need a place to stay, you can come at our place. Maybe you need something to eat, we'll feed you. Maybe you need more clothes because you just arrived here and your clothes are dirty and old, we'll give you more clothes. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And the man is like, I just insulted you and insulted your father. Why are you saying this to me? He's like, well, maybe you don't know. You don't know who we are. You are misguided. That, that was enough to turn the man around. And right away he became an ally of Imam al-Hassan The Imam didn't sit him down and preach to him and made him read books and tell him Allah is like this and religion is like that. He didn't do any of that. He just dealt with the man. From that behavior, it was enough for the man to enter. And we all know the story, for instance, the many, many stories of the Holy Prophet, how people would flock him to Islam. And this is the funny part, is that if you study the life of the Holy Prophet, and you see how he was, and how he attracted people to him, and then you read someone say that, that uh, Islam was spread by the sword, you wonder, like, what, where did they get that? What did they study to say something like that? When the Holy Prophet, for instance, there's a Jewish woman who would 
harm him all the time and harass him all the time. And then for three days, she, she wasn't there in his way. So he started asking about her. He told them, there's a, a woman who usually stops, and stops me in the middle of, of my way and she throws filth at me, but I haven't seen her in three days. And she was, yeah, she was, he was told that she's sick. So he went to visit her and she became a Muslim. And when people saw that, they become Muslim too. This is not by preaching. The Prophet didn't preach to her and sit her down and teach her the Qur'an. This is just behavior. This is just manners, conduct, mercy, behavior, and it attracts people to religion. Imam Sadiq has a saying to his, to his followers at his time. He tells them, be callers to us, invite people to us, kunu du'atan lana, call people to us without using your tongues. Bighayri al-sinatikum. Call people to us without your tongues. This is normal people. The Imam is expecting his followers to be the type of people who will attract others to religion just with their behavior. Without opening your mouth. You don't need to preach. People need to see you and say, this is Islam and this is what I want. This is amazing. I respect that. I like that. It's attractive. Right? So this is what they're teaching their people. So imagine when we say, so Allah has sent someone to guide you spiritually. Then I need that from them. I need them to be even better so that they show me how this is done and they actually live it. Right? Okay, the last thing, and I didn't want to spend too much time today, the last thing that I need from a prophet, and this is the one thing that you find in different sermons, in Nahj al-Balagha, for instance, from Imam Ali, an insistence on this from the Qur'an, the last thing I need from the prophets is that they bring me back to my true nature. And there's so much that we can talk about here. But in general, this is the word of fitrah that exists in the Qur'an, that's referred to in the hadith. Fitrah simply means your natural state. The job of prophets, what I need from them, is not only just to add stuff from the outside, just cram my brain and my heart with things from the outside. That's one thing. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's as though He says, He's already created us in a way with the proper wiring, that we're good. We are supposed to function properly and in the right way, just based on our internal wiring. Just the manner, naturally, that we were created, we're supposed to be good. That's supposed to be pretty good on its own. But what's the issue? The issue is that for the majority of people, the majority of us, we lose the natural state. We don't know what it looks like anymore. We're distracted from it. There are so many things that happen in our lives. And the majority of them are related to matter and material things. There's money, there's problems, there's family, there's the way we're brought up, there's society, there's culture, there's our history. All of these things are like layers of dirt on top of our real nature. The job of the prophets is to take that out from under the dirt, remove the dust, and remind us. They, they play the role of reminding, 
I'm going to remind you what you really are. I'm going to bring you back to your natural state. And on your own, you're going to go in the right direction. I'm just going to dust you off. I'm going to remove all those things, the filth that you've put on yourself that prevents you from seeing. I'm going to remove that from you. And then you go to your natural state. You recognize yourself. You recognize God. You know what you, why you were built. Why you were created. What you're supposed to do. Why are you here? I just bring you back to your natural state. The Holy Quran talks a lot about this. This idea of things that are being... In Surah Al-Shams, for instance, it says, when it, what it's talking about, the beginning of Surah Al-Shams, I'm sure that all of you know it by heart, وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا وَالْقَمَرِ إِذَا تَلَاهَا وَالنَّهَارِ إِذَا جَلَّاهَا وَالْلَيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَاهَا What is it saying? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is swearing. He says, I swear by the sun. And I swear by the noontime. I swear by the moon. All these 14 times he swears. Why? What's the answer of the swear? Why is he swearing? He, he swears what? وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَاهَا وَالسَّمَاءِ بَنَاهَا وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا طَحَاهَا نَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا So he swears by the soul and he who created it in the perfect way, سَوَّاهَا تَسْوِيَ is perfect creation. And this is the answer. فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا So he inspired it to know itself what is good and what is bad for it. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I swear by all of that, including the soul, and he who created it in this perfect manner and made it intuitively know what's good for it and what's bad for it. Okay, so then I know what's good for me and what's bad for me intuitively. So what's the issue? This is the answer of all these swears. قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ زَكَّاهَ The answer, I swear by all of this, that the one who purifies that soul has won. And I swear by all of those things, that the one who puts it underground, who buries it, وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّاهَ The one who puts that soul underground, they lost. خَابَ الْخَيْبَ is loss, Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is swearing by all of this. This is the link to fitrah. He swears that the soul that he has given us, the fitrah that he has given us, our natural state recognizes good and bad on its own. So what, is, what else is there? That's perfect. I don't need anything else. But then the next verse reveals that no, no, not everybody is in their natural state because there are some people who are doing tezkiyah so they're doing purification. In Arabic, tezkiyah, the real word comes from when you take the gold and you, extra, you remove the dirt from it until you find the little pieces of gold. That's the real word of tezkiyah in Arabic. Zakah and tezkiyah, this is the process. Imagine this is the Qur'an, what it's saying about you and your soul. This is what you have to do. You have to remove the dirt until you find the gold. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the one who does that to his soul... It's a long process. The one who does that to his soul, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I swear that they have won. They have succeeded. And the one who instead takes the soul and buries it underground, 
The one who puts it underground. And then if you go to Nahj al-Balagh, Imam Ali salam, he talks about prophets. He explains, in one of his sermons, he explains why he sent, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sent prophets to humanity. So he talks for, for a long time, and then this is the, the part that is well known, and it's linked to the fitra. He says to allow them, to allow human beings, to extract from the ground, dafa'in al-uqul, the reason or the rationality or the judgment or the minds that they have buried. Imam is saying people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them a mind, has given them a heart, has given them a soul, but they take it and they bury it. So Allah sends prophets to help them extract the minds that they have buried. If you bury your mind, then you can't use it. So the job of those prophets, this is all to say, what is the point of Allah sending prophets? It's not always just to add new information to you. That is important. But if you listen to the words of Imam Ali alayhi salam, he's saying their most important job is to bring you back to your true nature. Is to bring you back to not burying your mind and not burying your soul to extracting it, to taking it out of the ground after you put it in. And he says to remind them of the blessings that Allah has sent them and to use them as an argument so that no one says in the afterlife, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't guide me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't tell me. So he mentions these three reasons. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sending the prophets to what? To extract the reasons that have been buried to remind people of the blessings that they have forgotten and this is the dhikr this is why the Quran tell, talks about itself it calls itself a dhikr right? it's a remembrance it's like something that is there and you've forgotten it you forgot that there's a God you forgot that you're gonna die you forgot that you have to thank for the blessings that you have you forgot, you forgot so I'm gonna remind you the point of the Qur'an, a dhikr Again and again, it talks about itself as a dhikr And the role of the Holy Prophet is mudhakkir. Constantly saying, we have only sent you to remind people. That's your only job, just remind them. Well, this is linked to your fitrah. It's bringing you back, reminding you of how you're built. Reminding you of your true state, of your true nature. The last thing I'm going to say here is if we look at anything and everything created in the world, we see that it has been guided. And we talked about this when we talked about God and the term rububiyyah, lordship, and we said there's different types. If we look at anything in the world, we see that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. If I look at the sun, the sun does what it's supposed to do every day. If I look at an atom, if I look at fish, if I look at a turtle, if I look at a plant, everything is doing what it's supposed to be doing. This is guidance. It's guided. All alone. The turtle is born all alone. Inside an egg, inside the ground, 
near the beach. And it's there all the way until it's ready to hatch. And then it breaks its egg. It goes out without any parents, without anything. It goes out and it starts running all the way to the water, all the way to the ocean. As if it already knows which way it's supposed to go. And it has to run because the birds start coming to eat them. If you study the life of a turtle, you'll see this is always happening. Every day, every year, for thousands of years, and it doesn't stop. Okay, this, is, this is what the Qur'an refers to as guidance. That things, it's, it's like, it looks like, it seems, everything knows what it's supposed to be doing. On its own. All the time. There's no turtle that comes out and goes the other way. They all get out and go directly to the ocean. Okay. The only thing that doesn't do that in the world that we know of is a human being. Because the human being has freedom. So you don't leave your mother's womb and you start praying. You do things. Your body does what it's supposed to do. Your eyes, your heart, your lungs, your stomach, your everything does everything it's supposed to do. But you, the real you, without the body, you are not like that. You've, give, you've been given the freedom to choose. Do you feel like doing according to the guidance or not? This goes back to the topic of Tawheed. So we're now linking the Nubuwa, the reasons why a Nabi is sent, is to bring it back to the topic of Rububiyyah, Lordship. And we said there's two types. There's existential guidance. So these are the turtles running to the water on their own, and your heart beating on its own. It's not a choice. It beats whether you like it or not. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. There's guidance. And then there's you, the real you, that decides, and you also have a guidance. And that guidance for you is the law that is sent. Because you're free. The sun doesn't choose, do I follow the law or not? It's existential, it's taqweeni. But you, it's not taqweeni, it's tashriri. I'm just going to give you the law and you choose. You can stop at the red light or you can go through. And there's a consequence. Other things, they're created, they know. Automatically, red light, I stop. Green light, I go. You, you get to choose. And if you choose the right thing, I reward you. The others don't get a reward because they don't choose. And if you do the wrong thing, I punish you because you chose. The others don't get punished because they don't have a choice. Okay, so that's the link between the Tawheed and Nubuwa. And the last thing, and this is maybe an argument that we can add, how do we prove that prophets were sent? I just thought I'd end with that. There's a lot of proofs mentioned for why prophets are sent. One of the things that are mentioned, this is kind of a negative proof, it's kind of an argumentative rhetoric, rhetorical proof. Ibn Sina, in one of his books, he says, if we look at the way Allah subhanahu wa has created things, we find a lot of luxuries in the world. Things that don't have to be there, but they're there. So he gives examples. He says, look at the way the eye is shaped. And look at the fact that you have an eyebrow. And anyone who studies why, and we have actually narrations from the imams that explain why we have eyebrows. Okay? They say, for instance, they block off the sun. So if you don't have it, and people who don't have them or who lose them, 
let's say you have an accident or they get burnt or something like that, you know how much more sun goes in your eye if you don't have an eyebrow. Okay. This is, and, and that the sweat, the Imam in, in his hadith, he says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put the hair here because we sweat on the forehead. So when it comes, it doesn't go in the eye, it goes on, on the eyebrow. So it stops the sweat from going in and so on and so forth. So Ibn Sina mentions a few things. He says if we look at the way Allah has created the world, we see that there's a lot of luxuries. So the eyebrow, he mentions the eyebrow. He talks about the arch of the foot. It's like Allah could have created, we don't need, we just need something to walk on. We have feet. But Allah added this arch in the, in the foot because it makes it more beautiful and more comfortable to walk on. But this is a luxury. He didn't have to do that, but he did. So he mentions a few of these luxuries. And he says, if this is the type of God that we have, where even the smallest luxuries are part of the system, then is it possible to think that he didn't send anyone to guide human beings when that's not a luxury? That's a necessity. If he took care of every little detail, every little luxury has been thought about, is it possible to think that that type of God would not have sent anyone to tell human beings how they're supposed to live? Or what they're supposed to do? Or what's a good thing and what's a bad thing? It doesn't make sense. And therefore, he says, prophethood is necessary. Just by looking at the world and the luxuries in it, we prove that prophethood is necessary. So I'll stop here. Inshallah, next time we start talking about revelation. And then after that, we talk about the traits and the and the types of people that we want the prophets to be, or we need them to be, otherwise they're not really. What's the point of having prophets? Okay? Questions, concerns, issues? Yes. Okay, so the link is, when we talked about Tawheed, we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has different characteristics. One of them is, we call him Rabb. The meaning of Rabb, we said, is to take care of, the one that takes care of. In the religious way of talking, the taking care of, we call it Hidayah, guidance. Okay. There's two types of guidance. Either you guide existentially, so you hardwire. So you put in the hardwiring of something, the way you create it, that's how it does it. That's hidayah taqwiniyah. Without having to say anything, that's how something behaves automatically. And there's hidayah tashri'iyah. So I'm going to help you go in the right direction, but it's not hardwired. This is something I create a law for and your choice to follow it or not. That's when, what we explained when we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has characteristics. One of them is lordship. And I parked it there. So now I'm going back to it and saying, now that we reached the topic of prophethood, we said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides through existence and He guides through a legal means, legislation. So this is coming to us through prophethood. So we, we stopped that argument there, we parked it, now we're going to continue it.
They say this is the guidance that we're missing as human beings. This guidance because we have freedom. So the things that are existentially hardwired in us, that's already taken care of. And the things that are not existentially hardwired, then we need a law that tells us do and don't do, and this comes to us through prophethood. And this is repeated again and again in the Quran. For instance, Musa when he talks to Fir'aun, he tells him, Our God is the one who has given everything its creation, and then he has guided it. Okay, so you have to see what type of guidance. وَالَّذِي قَدَّرَ In Surah Al-A'la وَالَّذِي قَدَّرَ فَهَدَى The one who has created everything with a precise measure, that's taqdeer, فَهَدَى وَالَّذِي قَدَّرَ فَهَدَى So he, there's a precise measure and then there's a guidance in accordance with that measure. So there are things that get one type of guidance, other things get another type of guidance. 